Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with rent to retirement? Rent to retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, They've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high-cash-flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com slash pockets. Fundrise.com slash pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by James Daynard. James, is that a, do you have like a tower of rockstar energy drink behind you i do it's my it's my uh my 40 for my staff got me a rockstar cake for my 40th birthday (laughs) so it's had this beautiful bouquet on top and so i I, it's been slow it's kind of like the cake in your kitchen though i feel like i'm pulling the frosting off because i'm pulling one can out at a time i was trying to keep it but i can't help it (laughs) james you're an you're an easy man to buy gift for if all you need is is rockstar energy drink (laughs) For those who don't know James personally, he is never more than a few inches away from Rockstar. So that seems like a very good gift for him. Uh, sales fuel. Sales fuel. Absolutely. Well, you recommended the excellent guest we have today. Tell us, first of all, who our guest is and why you wanted to bring him on. Yeah. So Matthew Gardner is the chief economist of the Windermere, uh, which is a real estate company, mostly in the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast. But in our local market, they are the biggest brokerage. They have the best brand presence. Um, And, you know, for years, I've been listening to Matthew talk about the economy, whether it was in the recession times or even up in today. And he's just very factual 
Uh, he understands stats. He looks at trends. And he's just a very smart guy. And he's so well-spoken with how he delivers the information. But everybody in the Pacific Northwest loves Matthew. We all listen to his reports. Uh, he always provides value. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't know who Matthew was until we booked him for the show. And I've been reading some of his reports here. And I'm super excited to talk to him about affordability because this is, you know, we talk about rates, which obviously is a lot on the show. That has a huge impact on affordability. But there are a lot of variables that go into affordability. And I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding and confusion around the topic. So I'm really looking forward to digging into the affordability question with him. Is there anything else you're you're hoping to talk to him about? Well, I'm hoping he gives me like a little gold nugget for the Pacific Northwest of what to go buy. But, you know, I, I don't know if he's going to be able to give me that. Like he, you want a specific address? Like he's going to tell you. Yeah, exactly buy here. Buy. It will grow. <laughs> if he knows <laughs> that, he might he might keep that for some paying clients. I don't know if he just dishes that out to, uh, to an entire podcast audience. It's Sure. Well, maybe we'll be buddy buddies by the end of the podcast and he'll give me those those golden those little golden gems. Well, I think no matter what, if it may it might not be down to the address level, but I'm sure we're gonna get some golden gems out of uh Matthew. And for all of you listening, if you do appreciate us bringing on these types of economists who help you unpack and understand the the market that we're in right now, I help identify opportunities for your own investment portfolio. Please make sure to write on the market a review. You can do that either on Spotify or on Apple. And I know it's just like this little thing, and I promise it only takes like 30 seconds, but it really does help the show a lot be able to attract these types of guests and continuing to make this great content. So if you're a loyal listener and you haven't yet written us a review, we would really appreciate if you took one minute to do that on Spotify or Apple right now. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com.
First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. With that said, let's bring on Matthew Gardner, the Chief Economist for Windermere Real Estate. Matthew Gardner, welcome to On the Market. Thanks for being here. Hello, Tate. Good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. Let's start by having you introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about what you do as it relates to real estate and real estate investing. Oh, okay. Oh, as far as the background, as you can probably gather, I'm not from around here. Uh, I was born, raised, and educated uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, after completing my formal education at Oxford and London School of Economics, I joined a, an old company of land agents, and these are companies that manage uh, institutional portfolios of real estate. And the company I work for uh, represented not just my college, but the royal family as well. So, uh, and there I was involved as an analyst uh, in advising on their portfolio, whether you should sell, whether you should buy. I came to the Pacific Northwest. I'm based now in Seattle uh, in the late 90s uh, to visit my sister, actually, who was already living here. And what I found very quickly is that real estate developers well, they really relied on themselves in deciding what to build. No one's really advising them. So I saw a niche, opened up my own company, spent 18 years advising developers, governments, and, and other entities on what was going on in the development world. And Windermere Real Estate was a very early client of mine. That relationship continued through my entire time having my company till eight years ago when they talked me into to joining them. And Windermere is a company, if you don't know us, we have about 300 offices in the 10 Western states. About 6,500 brokers that sold roughly $45 billion worth uh, of real estate last year. And as chief economist, uh, my, my, my ultimate goal is to analyze and interpret economic information so I can advise our brokers on what's going on so they can therefore best advise their clients. All right, Matthew. Well, I can see why James wanted to have you on. You're obviously an expert in his favorite market of Seattle. And <laughs> obviously are doing the type of work that all of our audience is very eager to hear about. So I've read a few of your reports, uh, but let's start, you know, I want to dig into affordability today, but let's just start by having you share some of your just high level thoughts about the housing market today um, to get us rolling. Well, I think the, the big thing that everyone is like the 800 pound gorilla for want of a better word is, is inventory. There is none. And of course, there's nothing on the market to buy. Uh, then you, brokers can't sell anything. Uh, and that's the reason why we're going to see a remarkably low level of transactions this year. 
Uh, is it going to get better? Well, that's perhaps something we'll talk about uh, momentarily. But I think there are a couple of things are one is supply, lack of it. And on the other side of the equation, it's a lot of people saying, OK, well, look at where interest rates, where mortgage rates are today. We're at what, 7.2 percent, I think, uh, this morning. Uh, isn't that going to cause the market to, in essence, collapse in the same way it did in 2007? Uh, and I would argue that is certainly not the case. But it is a big concern. It's a big concern, certainly as it relates to affordability. But right now we are in a housing market that, quite frankly, just lacks direction. It doesn't know where it wants to be and, and where it's going to go, certainly over the course of the next year or so. What we've seen over the last like six months is you keep hearing the doom and gloom about rates increasing. We've seen them dramatically go up over the last nine months. And, you know, and I think everybody's been waiting for that shoe to drop, but yet that we still see the median home price creeping up nationwide, which is, you know, I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for, for Jerome Powell and whether he's just going to keep increasing rates because, you know, it's not going in the direction he wants. But what is your take on that? Because I think that's caught everybody off guard. I, I did not think that the median home price would be climbing. And it's not going up rapidly, but it has steady increases as rates keep going up. Is that a concern that you think rates will continue to go? Or is it more that you just think that the, the inventory is so low, it doesn't even matter and people are finding a way to buy? I think it's probably more the, the latter rather than the former uh, in that respect, James. Do I think rates are going to continue to rise? I think it is unlikely I think, quite frankly, that we, we've peaked out pretty much where we are today. And so I think it'd be, I'd be massively surprised. I think everyone else would to see rates continue to get up into the eights and, and even potentially north of that. So I think we've peaked. Uh, but as far as its impact on housing, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people thought, it well, borrowing costs, if they've doubled. And as we all know, right, it's a very simple piece of math. If you want to keep the same payment, well, for every one percentage point increase in mortgage rates, you can afford to borrow 10% less. And keep that payment the same. So whatever you're paying, let's say at four, uh, if rates went to five, you wanted to keep that payment the same uh, as you had before, then you could borrow 10% less. So uh, everyone thought that, yeah, I mean, the market's going to cause the market to collapse and massive erosion in home prices. But it is that supply side part of the equation that really is supporting values. And it goes back to Econ 101, right? And if you have limited supply, but still net new demand, well, that allows prices to appreciate. But I think a lot of people are also hedging. They're saying, OK, you know, what? It, it's, I found the perfect house. It's one I've been wanting to buy forever. It's now on the market. Uh, I know I hate mortgage rates where they are, but I'll buy now and I will refinance down the road. So the expectation is that rates will come down. And that is really what is supporting uh, home values, at least nationally. Of course, uh, not all markets are created equal. So, Matthew, you know, we're sort of talking a little bit around here about uh, affordability. And, you know, obviously there are multiple there are multiple inputs into affordability. So I, I want to dig into that. But can you just tell our audience a little bit about what affordability means in terms of the housing market and what are the different variables that make up affordability? Okay. Only from affordability index, I know, as you know, a lot of entities are out there that put their own numbers out. And what it really looks at is the ability for a household who's making an area's median income, can they afford a median priced house based on the last quarter, last year's sale price? Normally, uh, it's quarterly. So that really is the math that goes into it. So you'll know what they're making. You know what you can, they can borrow, make some assumptions on down payments, taxes, etc. But can they afford to buy somewhere or not? And I think if you look at affordability in general, and quite frankly, it's something which has been keeping me awake at night for the last 20 odd years. 
Uh, it's always been an issue because there is a massive undersupply of housing. And so is housing affordable across the country? Well, it's not, but I think we'll probably get to that point in a minute. But in essence, it really looks at the relationship between home prices in a location and how much households are making. Thank you for, for explaining that. And could you tell us a little bit about how, where affordability is now in a historical context? Okay. Well, there's two, uh, two groups I look at in terms of, of the numbers that they put out relative to affordability. One, obviously, is the National Association of Realtors. And their affordability index uh, really said, suggested that a household in America making median income could not afford to buy a medium-priced house starting in May of last year. As we all know, that was when actually a month or so after mortgage rates started to jump uh, <laughs> massively. Now, although it does say they were technically affordable in two months later on that year, uh, August and December, for the last five months of this year, most recent data within July, U.S. housing is not technically affordable. That's across the country. Now, there's another index put out by the National Association of Home Builders. Now, their data for the second quarter of the year suggests that 40.5% of homes, both new and resale single-family homes, that sold in the second quarter were affordable. So that's less than half. Now, that number's up from about 38%, I believe, in the fourth quarter of last year. But it was the third lowest level of affordability we've seen since they started publishing that report back in, what, 2004. So um, affordability, certainly in a lot of the country, not everywhere, is a major constraint still. And I think that's likely to continue to be the case. I think affordability comes up a lot because people look at some of these indices and they see what you're showing that indexes that measure this are at some of the lowest points that they've been in multiple mm -hmm. decades. And they say, see, look, the housing market has to correct. This is sort of like the thing, like, look, this is unsustainable. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we do need to get back to, let's say, the average affordability of the last 40 years? Or are we sort of in this new normal now where of Housing affordability is just lower. I think about it in terms of the ability, not just for a household to buy a home, but look at home ownership rates. So if going back from 1965 to now, on average, 65% of US households own their home, 35% rent. Just that is what it is. I mean, sorry, jump up significantly uh, as the housing bubble was forming. And that really kind of started actually in the early 1990s. But anyway, so, uh, but it, it really has trended back to that level. So I don't think it's a case that we need to see prices drop because, of course, incomes have not. They continue to go up. That can allow prices to increase. And there's only really been a couple of times um, since 1890, I think, we've seen a systemic decline in home values. So I think that that's unlikely. But the way to address it is really rather simple. More supply. And so that supply can come from two areas, right? It can come from either the resale market, more people selling, <laughs> unlikely, it can come potentially from investors uh, say, OK, well, now's the time for me to cash out. I've done very well uh, in having single family rentals or uh, housing, which I've owned in, uh, as an investment. Um, so they, they can have that way. But, but quite frankly, I think it needs to come from, from the new construction market. We just need to build uh, a lot more. And that, in turn, more supply, still a reasonable amount of demand that can allow price growth to slow down pretty significantly. 
which I think is what's needed. That's an interesting conversation because, you know, like for investors like myself that are buying and producing housing, it also is hard to find inventory right now that you can actually mathematically make sense. You know, where, you know, we have construction costs are still, you know, they're down 10% roughly year over year, it seems like, but the costs are still outrageous. Getting people to show up is it is a struggle still. And, you know, for investors, it you still have to buy product at a certain price, whether it's land or uh, value add property. And and so, you know, when we looking at these, we're like, well, okay, we have to put a certain amount of money in. So we still have to sell them for a very high price, which is kind of going against the affordability, right? For for a lot of us investors, you, we have to sell it at peak because we're giving it kind of peak type of product, totally turned. And as the affordability starts to shrink, do you get concerned, you know, that people can't keep up, right? Like wage growth, wage growth, they're predicting that it's going to be three to 4% for this year. And that the cost of housing is going up. And, you know, I know locally in our Seattle market, I look at like what things are selling for and who the buyers are. I'm like, wow, they are really stretching themselves. So if this continues to increase, how are they going to keep up with it with wage growth kind of getting flat or forecasting being more flat for the next 12 months? And again, if we, you have to look back in time, which is what us economists always do. Uh, we try and figure out the future by looking behind us what happened in the past. Historically across the country, again, going back over 100 years, House values got by inflation, just the way it's always worked. In a couple of periods where that hasn't quite worked out well, and recently, uh, obviously, because where inflation was, uh, that reaction was different. But uh, that is where we've seen it. So ultimately, do I expect to see home values or the pace of growth slow? Yeah. But when you think about pricing, what's fascinating is the variability. We all talk about every market's local, right? So if you think about the coastal markets, do they go up? by more than the Midwest of the United States. Of course they do. And 15 of the least affordable housing markets in America are where? California. Uh, and so it's quite remarkable. So where you have a situation, that's where we are seeing some jurisdictions, some states try and look at, okay, well, coastal markets or coastal states are expensive. Why? Lack of land uh, and also land regulation. Trying to uh, loosen those regulatory constraints, free up more land, in order to build more, because their view is, and I agree with it, we have to build our way out of this issue. Because we're not likely to see uh, sales increase or get back up to that six, six and a half million level. And I don't think we'll ever see that. If you think about it this way, mortgage rates back in 1980 were what? Almost 20%. But by decade, they came down from 20% to 12% to 6%, etc. So as rates come down, people's buying power increased. And that was therefore their incentive to say, okay, it's time for me to sell, upsize, uh, and, and move on. But that would require rates not just dropping back to, to in the fives, which I think is where they're going to end up long term, but continue to drop. And we're not, we're not going to see that. Otherwise, money would be free, right? So I, I think we really reached that point whereby I don't, I don't expect to see transactions increase beyond the, national, the uh, normal demographic uh, scenarios of people downsizing. We know that baby boomers are getting older. But quite frankly, they're not downsizing uh, at the speed we'd like to see uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which is they've got too much stuff. Uh, and, uh, and the kids, you try and give it to them, it'll be on eBay next week. So they're not downsizing. And so if they're not downsizing the move-up buyers, they have limited opportunity. If they're not moving, for the first-time buyers are shot. And that is the market we really need to start addressing. Well, just as, as an anecdotal evidence, there's a, there's a I, I won't name uh 
group in my family, some boomers who said who sold their house to quote unquote downsize and they wound up buying like a five bedroom house that was bigger than their earlier one. So I think just in my personal experience, I've seen that myself. And they do that because they think that all the kids are going to come back and visit with them. No, they're not. That's honestly, that is like the number one thing. They they want everyone in one house at the same time, which I understand, but that's like a use case of maybe one time per year or every other year. Exactly. And now they're taking up all this housing. That's a whole other uh, sociological discussion. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I just want to sort of recap what you were saying before about rates and going down. And, and I just, you were saying that you didn't think we we're going to get to that transaction volume of 6 million again. I just want to make sure I understand. You're basically saying that the incentive to transact mm -hmm. as rates fell by decade, you know, mm -hmm. kept going down and down and down. Like we might never reach another point where there is as strong an incentive for people to move up or to trade or transact. And therefore, we may have hit, at least for the foreseeable future, sort of like the peak amount of home sales uh, that are going to happen in any given month or year. Is that yeah, I mean, you're, essence, you're right. I don't think, I think we're, by my forecast, this year will probably be around 4.3 million. Horrible number. It's been decades since we last yeah, bought that low. Next year, I, I don't, I'd be surprised if we broke above 5 million. I think we'll get close to it, 4.8, maybe 4.85. So I, I think kind of 5 million is somewhere where, which we could have a certain level of comfort going forward. But more than that, again, just logically speaking and mathematically speaking, I think I, I will be surprised. Uh, to see us get back to the, those heady levels we saw. But also remember, through the pandemic, what were we doing? We were booking out of large cities, whether it be Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and moving to Austin, Idaho, Boise, these kind of markets. So that really, I think, poured a lot of that demand forward uh, already. So because of that, uh, in addition to the fact that I just don't see, we said we're going to see rates drop over time, but we're not. Anyone that thinks we're going to get back to a 3% 30 again, I think is going to be waiting a very long time because unless yeah. the Fed jumps in again, that's the reason why we had rates sub three anyway, uh, then if that doesn't occur, again, it, it just doesn't work out because they always rates have to have a relationship with the yield on 10-year treasuries. So that means yield on 10-year paper is going to be down around 1%. Not going to happen. So Matthew, with the with the sale volume being, you know, that's almost two million less homes being sold. You talked about earlier that it was about seventy thirty with the the renters or sixty five thirty five with renters mm -hmm. versus homeowners. Do you see that switching over the next twelve to twenty four months to where as new buyers come in, they're just more comfortable being renters because there's no product to buy? And are we looking at an America that could go fifty fifty renter versus ownership? I, I don't think so, uh, and I think that. Most home buyers or would-be home buyers, and think about it demographically, I mean, everyone talks about millennials, right? They think, well, they're getting older uh, as they're aging out. A lot of them are turning 40 now. So, But I'm looking at, uh, let's say, my son, Gen Z, behind them. And, well, I mean, over, almost 70% of them believe that buying a home will be the most astute financial investment they'll ever make. And, I mean, the Fed every three years, right, comes out mm. uh, with an analysis. I'm actually waiting on the latest one, which shows the median household wealth of a homeowner household versus a renter household. And the last numbers are 2019. And I memory serves me right. I think they said the median household wealth, the homeowner household was around a quarter of a million dollars and a renter household around $6,000. So I can extrapolate that out to today. Easily, we're looking at a, an owner household as a, across America has a net wealth of probably around 320,000, renter about eight. So it's the way a majority of Americans create their wealth uh, is through mm -hmm. long-term ownership of housing. 
Is it for everyone? Of course, no, it's not. Uh, but I think it is still a goal uh, of a sizable part of our growing, not just growing population, but aging population. I think about the young kids in college today. Yeah, and it kind of shows the sign of the times, because I remember after the 2008 crash, it was like 9, 10, and 11, the 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 younger population had this negative stigma on owning a house, right? Their parents had just been foreclosed. Everyone was losing their properties. No one wanted real estate at all. They're like, that is a terrible thing to own. And now you have these Gen Zs coming up and they saw all this growth and people do, having all the success. And I do feel like the first time home buyer, I was actually talking to my title rep the other day, who's a, he works for a very large uh, title company, Fidelity National Title, and he said 50% of all transactions that they're doing right now are first time home buyers. And so I think that is been ingrained into that. Like, if you want to make it in America, you have to buy that house. And so there's going to be sacrifice for your house payment. Um, but but it's crazy how much of a switch it is from watching the young buyers back then. And they were incentivized. They had that first time home buyer credit back then. It was a great product and people still didn't want it. And now people are just taking the, the leap on, on where pricing's at right now. I think it's, I mean, education is everything, right? Uh, I think people have watched the big short. They watch a lot of these movies that came out uh, about the housing bubble and there are three of them which are very good. Uh, so I think it comes down to, to education and the understanding of what happened back then, the genesis of the housing bubble uh, under Clinton, the early nineties, all the way through Bush, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is something which is unlikely to happen to now. You think about it. I mean, uh, like it was last, last week, uh, was the anniversary of Lehman Brothers filing a bankruptcy. Uh, filing, which was the biggest filing in U.S. history. So, uh, yes, there's a lot of negative connotations, but I think people understand that what happened then is very unlikely to happen again. And they're also seeing the fact that, yeah, they can own their house. Guess what? They can paint their walls. Uh, it's also forced savings. The mortgage payment, little piece of that, uh, that pie comes out, uh, paying down principal, the tax benefits, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that everyone is aware of. So I think they're seeing that today and saying, yeah, you know, I really think that that is where I want to go rather than renting and what am I doing? Paying somebody else's mortgage. There are a lot of, uh, uh, Matthew, uh, analyses now, though, that show that it if you are a renter and actually take the like, it's sort of this hypothetical, right? So like if you had the money to make a down payment mm -hmm. and instead of buying a home, you invested it, you rented and invested mm -hmm say in the stock market and earned eight to 9% or whatever, or perhaps invested in a rental property instead of a uh, primary residence that you would actually do better. And I actually do that myself. I rent and invest my money into rental properties because you actually earn a better return um, in some markets. It depends on where you are, but I was just curious your thought of, thoughts on that. Well, I think wait, let's look at it. Uh Let's have the stock market first, uh, or the uh, investing in equities. And I'm assuming equities, and we're not talking about crypto, because I'm, I'm, nope. I'm kind of a, a, the Charlie Munger viewer in that respect. But Not for James or I, at least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the first thing I'd say is very simple, capital gains taxes. So you have to remember, as, as a married household, uh, the first $500,000 in upside, uh, in terms of the increased value of that home, tax-free. Tax-free. Uh, yep. Are the equities you're buying going to be tax-free? Guess what? No, they're not. You know, nailed 30 plus percent on those. So there is that. And again, in addition to the fact, you can also, uh, you're paying down your mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, depending on obviously how long you're there. Uh, but more than anything else, it's shelter and, and it's yours. Now, certainly, uh, as you said, Dave, there are people like yourselves where it makes more sense for them to still invest in real estate 
Now, I could argue you could still see, if you choose to sell that unit, the same issue uh, regarding capital gains, unless you made it your principal primary residence, unless you kind of moved into it for, for a while. Um, right. But subject to that, uh, yeah, I, I think that that can be for some a viable option, again, depending on where in the country you are. But for most people, uh, the stock market, I mean, it, it certainly acts like a petulant child more often than not. Yes, you can see those swings, those upsides, uh, but you also can see downside as well. And is it more likely to see a recession, therefore a contraction in equity prices? Or is it as likely that you'll see a contraction in home values? Yeah. You've only seen a couple of downsides in home values. No, uh, yeah, 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 totally. Less, way less volatility for sure. So again, it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario uh, at all. But I think in general, my argument would be those that are saying, you know, you're better off if you'd invested in, I don't know, Tesla or something. Um, I would say yes today, maybe not six months ago. Um, but uh, you could say that. But I think that's more cherry picking than anything else. If you just get into an index fund, okay. But uh, uh, last time I saw, I've actually never seen anyone living under a stock certificate. <laughs> yeah. So, Matthew, you made kind of a, a good point, right, that real estate can be a lot less volatile and more dependable than the stock market, which I truly do believe. I seem to lose money on stock market and crypto and anything else besides real estate. Uh, not that you can't lose money in real estate, too. But what so like. I do believe that, but in the climate that we're in right now, I mean, what are there? There's obviously risk in every type of asset class. What should we be wary of as real estate investors? Like right now, we're out trying to buy properties to sell them for profit, keep them as rental properties. What should investors be looking out for right now as they're looking at buying that next investment? Because we're all eager to buy, but we're a little bit cautious right now. I think that there's some things which actually uh, you gentlemen have already mentioned, uh, and that is the fact that is it a market that you can buy? Uh, a house, and knowing that the rent you'll be able to achieve uh, having bought it, is there a yield there? I mean, there's a reason why institutional investors, obviously not, not mom and pop investors, which although that comprises a vast majority of the market, have they been pulling back significantly? Uh, absolutely. I mean, they're still active in a couple of markets, but generally not. Um, so I would say that the first thing to do is you know what uh, you're borrowing, you know what your payment's going to be, your rents are going to be. Does that make sense? today or does it not? And so I think that's one of the first things. Secondly, I'd look at the market and is it a market that you could potentially see some additional price erosion from where we are today? And I think in the past, I guess, on you've talked about markets which are still of a concern. Uh, Austin, Texas is obviously one. I'd say Boise, Idaho uh, is another one. We love beating up on those markets too. <laughs> Everyone does right now, quite frankly. Uh, it really is kind of scary. Uh, but they are markets, which and certainly Boise, um, which go back 15, 20 years. No one really wanted to be there. Um, but it, it kind of, it's funny. It's, it's an area of last time I, was, I go there every year now uh, to give a speech. And it, it reminds me of a scaled down gas lamp district in San Diego. It's kind of hip. Mm -hmm. It's got some good restaurants and distilleries and breweries. Uh, uh, it's got a most amazing convention center that was built uh, by a company and then given to the city for nothing. Great regional airport. So I, mean, I think it's got some good things going to it. However, a couple of years ago, you could have bought a, a nice house for a bit north of a quarter of a million dollars. Today, we're talking north of $600,000. So, uh, and that, again, is because of that massive flight out of some of the more expensive markets, not just here in the Northwest, but very specifically California. So a couple of things that I just mentioned, one of which is, is there a yield? Does it make financial sense or is it costing you money? Uh, and that would therefore mean start looking at high property tax states and these kinds of things. 
is in a market that potentially can see some further price erosion, then you might want to wait uh, before you jump in. So those, I think, are the two things uh, that stick out to me. But in terms of being an investor and where prices are, we talked, we started out talking about affordability. Um, we're creating a lot of forced renter households that would like to buy that just can't. And not just the young kids that weren't quite ready to move out of their apartment. They haven't got a down payment ready. And all they've done is see prices go up and mortgage rates double. Um, but you look at a lot of uh, families. Everyone assumes that if you're a family, and then you, you rent an apartment. No, you don't. You rent a single family home. And so these are people that might want to get their foot on the first rung of the ladder, just can't make it work. They need somewhere to live. And so, again, shelter uh, in the long term is always going to be a good investment. But uh, the worry, again, comes back to affordability. So I'd say just look at, look at the markets in which you're, you're choosing or you're thinking about investing in. Um, don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't over leverage. All the things I would say to somebody who's looking to buy a home for, their, for themselves. Yeah, it's, it's really uh, yeah, a lot of the same fundamentals that we were saying. Matthew, before we get out of here, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. And thank you. Is there anything else uh, you think that our audience, uh, primarily of those small mom and pop investors you just talked about, um, should know about the market or factor into their decision making over the next year? Yeah, I would say that uh, when it comes to everyone's looking at mortgage rates, we started talking about it, we we'll might end up talking about it. Um, are we going to see them continue to skyrocket? I think that that is highly unlikely. But as they come down, and I, I expect they will. And in fact, I think we'll be down probably in the mid fives by the latter part of next year. Just calm down. It's going to be OK. We're just in a very unique situation right now. The Fed's trying to call inflation. In some respects, it's working. But the resilience of the U.S. economy has been remarkable. And, and that is not a good thing in terms of investors or indeed analysts like myself who try and forecast mortgage rates, because we should be slowing down a bit more. But that is not the case. However, we could overshoot or they could overshoot, keep rates higher longer. That could lead to a recession. Not a good feeling for any of us. However, good for mortgage rates, because they will drop faster uh, than I'm anticipating. So uh, I think really it is we are in a, a situation now coming out uh, of covid that we hadn't seen before in a century. No one wrote the book about it, about what was going to happen. The world is a very different place. So I think we just need to figure that out and just let, uh, let the seas calm down somewhat, which I think they will. But do I always think that in the right circumstance, uh, again, not over-leveraging yourself, is owning real estate as an investment or as uh, somewhere in which you live a good investment? Historically, it has been. And again, as an economist, I tend to look at history in order to forecast the future. I do not see that changing. But just be patient. In time, things will settle down. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for being here. We really appreciate it. If people want to follow your research, check out your incredible depth, in-depth reports, where should they do that? Well, thank you. Uh, so Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, it's M Gardner Econ. So M Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, Econ, E-C-O-N. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, MJD Gardner. And uh, that's where we put out uh, all of our analysis. All right. Well, thanks again for being here. We really appreciate it. David James, pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. You're welcome. Well, I see why you wanted to have Matthew come on the show here, James. What do you think of our conversation? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it was it was great for him to just talk about the affordability because we're all worried about this as investors. Like, are we going to get to a price point where no one's going to buy or no one's going to rent? And so 
it was just good to get some perspective on it. But being a Pacific Northwest guy, we listen to Matthew Gardner all the time as the chief economist for Windermere. And, and every time he speaks, it's always a little piece of gold. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot in there. And I think what he was talking about in terms of affordability really extends beyond that, you know, even the expensive state, you know, quote unquote, expensive areas, like obviously where you are in Seattle, we talked a lot about California, but most of the country now falls under the quote unquote, unaffordable area, even the places people are moving in the southeast in Florida and Tennessee, and in a lot of areas of Texas, the median income cannot afford the median price home in those places. And I think that for good reason has, you know, people have point to that and show, sit, look, say, hey, things have to come back to to normal. But uh, according to Matthew, that's not necessarily true. They, as long as supply is as low as it is, it apparently can stay up. And I, I think that's a really interesting thing that I've debated with many people because there no one knows for sure. But I think uh, Matthew brought us some really interesting perspectives on on this and whether or not we're going to have to see a, an improvement in affordability in the near future here. Yeah. And after we were getting done talking, I mean, for me, in the back of my mind, I was like, I think rent has some more growth in it. It you just, do? you know, as for some reason, it's like if pricing keeps going up and people seem to just be making this payment and and sales are so far down, you're going to have to rent in the short term until you find that house. And so it could push rents up a little bit more. Yeah, that I think in certain markets, I, I, th- I just feel like there's this big pull forward and household formation is just slowing down. Like all these people, you know, did the COVID uh, breakup, basically like roommates, you know, like everyone wanted to go their own way. Um, and so it just created more renter households and that fueled a lot of the rent growth and I don't think it's necessarily going backwards, but I think that, you know, all that juice that was in rents for a while might be slowing down, but we'll see. I don't necessarily think rents are sticky, so I don't think they're going to slide a lot, but uh, I, I personally, if I'm like looking at deals right now, I, I underwrite pretty slow rent growth. Are you in your deals putting in rent growth or is this a, a revelation you had today? No, very minimum. I think, you know, anything we're looking at, we're being very conservative, like, whether it's a value rent growth, we're, we're sticking it pretty flat, but you know, there's certain areas that I'm watching and I'm like, well, there could be some rent growth for, you know, it, it really comes down to what is the cost for rent versus buying and certain areas are way out of whack. And so we're still underwriting with low growth, but you know, I think the upside's there. Yeah, exactly. Like if you underwrite, find a good deal with no rent growth and then it grows, then it's good to be wrong. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. We appreciate you being here and for uh, recommending this great guest to us. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you and we'll see you for the next episode of On the Market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer and Kaylin Bennett, produced by Kaylin Bennett, editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media, research by Pooja Jindal, copywriting by Nate Weintraub, and a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but 
At the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.